you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We continue in our study of the book of Galatians, in which we've been going verse by verse, as is our habit. There are benefits and there are difficulties to such an approach. But I want to say here at the beginning, we should not suppose that studying the word of God should be easy that there should be no difficulties. It should be like studying any other book. Um, We should expect that hard work is involved. The benefits do, in fact, outweigh the difficulties, but the primary benefit is that when we study scripture as it is written, verse by verse, as it is to be understood, I think we get the real sense of what is being said. I love to read. I read fiction. I read nonfiction. And I've wondered from time to time, what would it be like if I read those books the way that many people read the Bible? That is, they hop around you know, from this verse to that verse, this chapter to that chapter. Um, you, know, you pick a part here, you pick a part there. And no doubt, if you've read a good a good book, there may be a part that you will go back to again and again. But that's not how you start out reading it. You start out by going from the beginning and you read through to the end. Um, That's what we've been doing in Galatians. And in doing so, I think we begin to have a real sense of what Paul is trying to say to the Galatians and what he is dealing with. How they are abandoning their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And what he does is he tells them a series of stories, beginning with his story in at least four parts, and then the story of Abraham, the story of the curse, the story of the promise and of the law. One of the things, though, that strikes me is that if you've not read Genesis, and if you've not read Exodus and then Deuteronomy, then the story of Abraham, the story of the curse and of the law is something that you would not really understand. So you you go at the beginning and there's the story of Abraham and then the promise that is made to him and then those that bless you will be blessed and those that curse you will be cursed and then the story of the law. I think that understanding these stories is something that was in part available to the people of the Old Testament but it is with the coming of the Messiah, Jesus the Messiah, that the spotlight, that the light is turned on and we begin to see these things for what they are. And so as we've seen the last week or so, that the law should be seen as preparatory. It's a guardian. Back in Paul's day, people who had the wherewithal, rather than raising their own children, would hire someone to raise their children, someone to be a guardian, and not necessarily to be a tutor. Um, because the King James uses the word schoolmaster, people think it's a tutor. No, it's someone to discipline them, to correct their behavior, that they're a minor, and until they reach their majority, and it differed in different places, but let's say 18 years old, that child is under the care of the guardian. And if that child turns out to be a rather misbehaved adult, that's on the guardian. Okay? Interestingly enough, not on the parents, uh, which is very different than, I think, what we find what is intended in Scripture. So the law was the guardian. It was to correct behavior, to discipline 
God's people to tell them, don't do this. These are the things that you should do. The next story after the law is the story of faith. So he says, Paul says that the law was to prepare us for when faith would come. If you look in chapter 3, verse 23, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. And verse number 25, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. So before this faith came, now that the faith has come, what is this referring to? As I mentioned last Sunday, there's some people who think that God had a plan. Plan A was the law, and that was just too tough. That was just too rough. People couldn't keep the law. So now plan B is faith, that faith is now the easier way. And that isn't, in fact, what's being said. When faith came is the messianic event. That's when Jesus came. And so Galatians 2.20 um, the, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. It is the faithfulness of Jesus that is the basis of our hope. It isn't our faith. Look at me, I have a lot of faith. Not at all. It is the faithfulness of Jesus. And so this faith has come, that's Jesus. Now that faith has come, that is the messianic event. So all of the stories previous to this, the story of Abraham, the promise, the curse, the law, these are all leading up to the fact that God would send his son into the world. In chapter 4, where we are now, Paul continues using story. The story now, first of all, in the first seven verses, is a story of the heir. Um, But one could also say it is the story of the second exodus. Uh, Look, if you would, we looked at this last week, but I want to go over it again. Let me read the first seven verses. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. It's one of those weird things. As long as you're a minor, you're in the same category as a slave. Even though it all will belong to you when your father dies, yeah, you're still in that category until you reach the age in which you have reached maturity. That's what the law was. Law, the law, if you wish, was to train people until the fullness of time came, and that's when God sent his son. Born of a woman, so he was a real human being, okay, not some phantom, and born under the law. That is, he's a Jew. He was born into the Jewish people. And he came so that he might redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Um, So I said last week, one would think after chapters 1, 2, and 3, when Paul has been writing about faith and justification, in chapter 2 he uses the word faith at least 12 times. But when he comes to chapter 4, he doesn't mention it once. He doesn't mention justification once. Um... We might be wondering, 
Paul, what are you up to? This is the perfect time to make the application, to you know, close the deal, if you wish. After telling us about Abraham and the promise and the curse and the law and faith and all this, what, what are you telling us now? And he's talking about a new exodus. Remember, Israel were slaves. The Israelites were slaves, and then they were brought out to Sinai. Um, we are slaves to sin, and then God rescues us from that. So he uses the language of slavery, of redemption, of inheritance, but not a word about justification or of faith. I said this in the conclusion last Sunday. So what is he pointing to? What is he speaking of? As I said last week, it's right there and we might miss it. The key is, in fact, in verse number six. And it is the key to any theological discussion. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. To tell the story of our redemption, to tell the story and to make the application, Paul doesn't speak of our faith. He doesn't speak of being made right with God, justification. He speaks of God. And God as Father, Son, and Spirit. God is not merely the source of truth, some fountain of truth. He is, in fact, the truth. And his nature illustrates that truth. Specifically, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It is the Father who sent the Son. It is the Father who sends and the Son who sends the Spirit into our hearts that we can now call God our Father. To be declared right in the sight of God is important. Okay? Believing in the crucified Messiah is important. But of greatest importance is the reality of the nature of the true God. So if you allow me to digress a bit here, to just talk about the matter of the Trinity. In Paul's writings, whenever we hear him referring to God, he is speaking of the Father. When he speaks of the Lord, he is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when he speaks of the Spirit, he is speaking of the Holy Spirit. So we find this in verse number six. Uh, God, the Father, sent the Spirit of his Son. So you have the three members there. And in the benediction that we usually use at the end of the service, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that's the Lord, and the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Some people may complain that the word Trinity is not found anywhere in the Bible. And that is, in fact, true. Uh, just as the word Bible is not found in the Bible. It is, in theology, what is called a class two word. That is to say, it is a word that the church has created or has used to convey the truth of what we find in Scripture. As best we can tell, a man named Tertullian is the one who coined the phrase Trinitas in Latin. In English, we call it Trinity. What is important for us, whether it's a class one or class two, it is a class two word, is that the doctrine of the Trinity is a purely revealed doctrine. This isn't something we could come up with on our own. It is something that God himself had to reveal to us. And again, there are people who would say, well, wait a minute, 
Christians actually stole the idea of the Trinity from other religions. So in, uh, among the ancient Egyptians, you have Osiris, Isis, and Horus. It's based on the analogy of the human family. You have the father and the mother and the son. In Hinduism, we actually have two trinities. Uh, the older one, uh, the gods of the Vedic period, you have Agni, Intra, and Varuna. And then in the more modern period, you have Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. And they're like, see, Christianity is ripping off the Egyptian religion or Hinduism. But these are not trinities, as we find in scripture. There is no analogy, and people have been trying for centuries to find an analogy in nature that would correspond to the trinity. Uh, like an egg has the eggshell and an egg white and the egg yolk. No, that doesn't work. Or, or water, it can be solid as ice or liquid, or it can be steam, it can be a gas. No, that doesn't work either. Um, some people say, well, we as human beings, we're body, soul, and spirit, which I actually don't think is the case. I think we are body and soul. Um, God stands unique as Trinity. There's nothing else in all creation that is like God. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Not three separate gods. There are three separate persons, but there is one God. They're not three modes of expression. I'll talk about this in a minute. They are three persons who are co-equally and co-eternally God. And you might say, and rightfully so, Damon, I can't really wrap my mind around that. Um, I think it is beyond our full comprehension. It is a revealed truth. It is a revealed truth of who God is. And as such, it reveals something that we could never have discovered on our own. If God had never revealed himself, one day someone would say, you know what, I think God is actually three persons and one God. No. It is something that God had to reveal to us, and he has done that in Scripture, but supremely through his Son and then the sending of the Holy Spirit. Some people have tried to reconcile this because the Trinity is just too much to accept. And so there is a school of thought called modalism. That is that God presented himself in different ways at different times. So uh, in the Old Testament, God reveals himself as father, as the lawgiver. And then when we come to the Gospels, God reveals himself as savior in the person of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus leaves. And then we have the spirit who is the one who sanctifies us and gives us eternal life. Um, when you read Galatians 4, 6, that just simply makes it impossible because God the Father sent God the Spirit of his Son, God the Son, into our hearts. <laughs> then there are those who believe that, in fact, we, what we have is not Trinity but tritheism, that we have three equal, independent, autonomous beings. Um, and that is why, by the way, that among Muslims, we are considered polytheists. They say, you don't have one God like we do. Allah is our one God. You have three gods. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And no. And again, it is a difficult concept, but it is something that is, I think, fairly plain, particularly in the passage in verse number six. But it is important for us to realize, as one author puts it, the Trinity is not primarily a doctrine any more than the Incarnation is primarily a doctrine. 
There is a doctrine about the Trinity, as there are doctrines about many other facts of existence. But if Christianity is true, the Trinity is not a doctrine, the Trinity is God. And the fact that God is Trinity, that in a profound and mysterious way, that there are three divine persons eternally united in one life and complete perfection beatitude, is not a piece of uh, gratuitous mystification thrust by dictatorial clergymen. In other words, it's like, ooh, it's a mystery, and since I'm the pastor, I'm somehow shoving it down your throats. Of unwilling but helpless laity, certainly don't think of you that way, and therefore to be accepted, if at all, with reluctance and discontent. It is the secret of God's most intimate life and being, into which, in his infinite love and generosity, he has admitted us. We are now his sons. And it is therefore to be accepted with amazed and exultant gratitude. Another author put it this way, the heart of the matter is that the doctrine of the Trinity is not an abstract mathematical puzzle, not the articulation of the rhythm of life, not the projection upon the ultimate of the manifold triplicities that a little inspired imagination can easily suggest to us. It arises from the fundamental recognition that Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. A recognition which in itself enabled by awareness of participation in the spirit in that same mystery. The rhythm is that of faith and worship. And the mystery at the center is the crucified and risen Christ. The sacrament and pledge of the reconciling and redeeming good favor of the Father extended even to us. Yet just because he is God with us, the awareness of faith opens into recognition of the triune being of God, for nothing is, nothing less is required if the truth of the gospel is not the last resort to be set aside. It is not simply a doctrine. It is the reality. It is truth. God is Trinity. The last thing I'll say about this is Paul never speaks of the Trinity in the form of a creed. Um, Paul doesn't say in any passage, God is Trinity, that he is Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay? What we do read from Paul is he speaks of what God has done, what God is doing, and what he will do. I'm not opposed to creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and such. Um, and in many ways, they're sort of a, a form of shorthand to compress what we find in Scripture. Um, but if we're not careful, we will rely on those, and I think they become intellectual in many ways, and they lose the very personal aspect of what is intended. Just as the lawyer knew what the great commandment was, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, he did not know who his neighbor was. So we may claim to say, oh yes, God is Trinity. Damon, I, I, I believe that. I accept that. And yet fail to appreciate what it means in our lives. When we pray, we pray to God the Father through God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. At this point, you might be wondering where I've been going with this. But... We come to the verses that follow, and this is our passage today, 
verses 8, 9, and 10. Listen to what Paul writes. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. If you were to sit down and read the book of Galatians through in one sitting, which would not be that difficult, okay, this might remind you of something that we saw at the beginning of chapter 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn from you just one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning with the Spirit that you're now trying to attain your goal by human effort? So Paul is again saying to Galatians, what's up with you guys? Um, what is wrong with you? As we look at verse number eight, and we'll see it as the beginning of this passage here, what we should acknowledge is that knowing God is what the gospel is all about. Now that you know God, or rather are known by God, I think if you ask a lot of Christians today, what is the heart of the gospel? And is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will go to heaven when you die. For Paul, that's not the gospel. The gospel is knowing God and being known by God. In John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, now this is life eternal, that they may know you. Okay, that's the gospel. That's eternal life, that we may know God the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jeremiah foresaw this. He wrote in Jeremiah 31, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. This is not to say that the Old Testament saints did not know the Lord, but rather in the Old Testament, covenant, the Old Testament, you had mediators between the individual and God. You had priests, you had prophets who mediated the truth of God to the people underneath the prophets and the priests. Now that Jesus has come, things have changed. And now we no longer, Jesus is our mediator. And so we are in fact prophets and we are priests. Um, we read, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. Then another passage, you have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. We're also prophets. That is, we have an understanding of scripture from 1 John chapter 2. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Now with this directness of approach, that we can come to God the Father directly through the Son, we are able to know God in a way that surpasses what the Old Testament saints had. As I said, the gospel is about knowing God. Paul would later write in Ephesians chapter 1, 
I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So God the Father, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, will give you the spirit that you may know him better. The amazing passage in Philippians chapter 3 what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the, surpass, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. Paul writes, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. This is the gift that is given to all believers, to know God, to have a relationship with him, to have an intimate relationship with God directly. This is what the Galatians had when they became the children of God. This isn't what they had before. Before, they were slaves. They were pagans. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. That is, they were marked by ignorance and by slavery. They, in fact, were enslaved to worshiping idols. It isn't that they didn't know about God. It isn't that they didn't have a sense of, oh, there's something bigger than me. They did not know God. They did not have a relationship with him. Just a side note, you, you know this well, that what we find in the Old Testament is that whenever we find the verb to know, it has very strong intimate overtones. And in fact, is used of the sexual union of a husband and a wife. So it isn't knowing about, it is actually knowing But living when and where we do, this is really, really radically different than what we hear. We live in a time in which fact and value have been separated. And so we have a different view of knowledge. Our view of knowledge is quite impersonal, quite distant. Um, we, we believe that knowledge requires nothing of us, that I can know certain facts and get on jeopardy and win a bunch of money because I know all this fact, but it really doesn't have any impact on my life. It requires nothing of me. And we live in a time in which the one who knows and the one who is known have no connection. So when we speak of knowing God and being known up by God, yeah, that's sort of over our head because we think of knowledge in a very, very different way. Previously, the Galatians had no relationship with God. Okay? They were not a part of his family. They were not in Christ. They were slaves to idolatry and to paganism. To me, this is the language of the Exodus. This is Israel, that they were slaves in Egypt. And you may remember when we went through Ezekiel, we saw that when the Israelites were in Egypt, many of them, in fact, were pagans. They were worshiping false gods. It's not like they, oh, they were really good people worshiping God and then God like, oh, I should probably let them out. Um, no, they had bought into the Egyptian system. 
and then God delivered them. The Galatians worshipped false gods. And let me read to you the story, uh, part of the story of when Paul and Barnabas first went to Galatia. In Lystra, there was a man crippled in his feet who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and reeves to the city gates because he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifices to them. And this is, this is what the Galatians worshipped. And Paul's like, yeah, you were slaves. You were slaves to paganism. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says that we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there, there is no God but one. Um, yeah, but the Galatians didn't know that until Paul came and preached the gospel to them. Before coming to faith in Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the Galatians were enslaved in their idolatry. And then something amazing happened. Paul explained the good news to them. And they came to know God. Not about God, but they came to know God. Or rather, they came to be known by God. They had been liberated from their foolishness, from their paganism, from demons. And they came into a relationship with God. But then the guys from Jerusalem showed up and said, yeah, that's all very well and good, but you still lack something. You need to follow the Jewish practices. And Paul's like, let me get this right. You were delivered out of slavery. You were brought into a right relationship with God. And now you want to go back? You want to go back to be enslaved by these principles? Let's see. Supernatural deliverance from slavery. And then a desire to go back. Does that sound familiar to any of you? It's the story of Israel in the wilderness. They'd been brought out of Egypt by Moses, delivered by the mighty hand of God. Now they face a long journey into the unknown. They're going to the promised land, but they don't, you know, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have GPS. They didn't know how long that was going to take. Um, where would they get food? Where would they get water? How would they be protected from their enemies? And at a certain point, they got tired. They even got tired of what God supplied, manna. And they're like, you know what? They've got garlic back in Egypt. They've got onions. I mean, we're eating this same stuff day after day. We want to go back. This is the Galatians all over again. Delivered out of paganism. And now, slowly but surely, they seem to be retreating into another form of paganism. The Israelites said, why did we leave Egypt? We were better off as slaves. By the way, we saw last week in John 8, the Jews said to Jesus, we were never slaves. <laughs> now you have the Israelites centuries before saying, yeah, we were better off as slaves. Really? 
Slavery is better than freedom. Paul says, you have been set free by the one true God who sent his son and his spirit, and and now you want to go back? You've had a taste of freedom. You've had a taste of the knowledge of God. And you're like, yeah, I I think I want to go back to the old ways. On the face of it, this is an astonishing claim. How, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? And then verse number 10, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years. Um, one could argue, and I, I probably would, that there is a connection between weak and miserable principles and the observing special days and months and seasons and years. Um, do they refer to the same thing? Possibly, but not necessarily. I think the weak and miserable things they used are the principles or what they used to do. And now those have been set aside, but now they're doing something else that is weak and miserable. Why? Because Jesus has come. That's it's the end of the law. He is, faith has come into the world. And now they want to go back to the old things. If you wish, new old things. The customs of the Jews. Um, the observing days and months and uh, seasons and years, I would argue, in fact, refers to the Jewish practices. Um, many of them were not, in fact, instituted by Moses. As time went on, people began to feel, oh, this is a special day. This is a special day. And it took on the force of law. So Jesus, in speaking to the religious leaders, quotes Isaiah 29, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship, their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. So they aren't necessarily following what Moses gave. They're following something that the Jews have made up. Now they're turning to Judaism away from faith in Jesus the Messiah. They have basically said, you know what Jesus did? It's not good enough. It's simply not good enough. We have to do our part. We have to pitch in. And ultimately what they're saying is that the death of Jesus is of no value whatsoever. A side note, because people might say, well, wait a minute, Damon, we worship on Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day, something we find in the New Testament. And we also find that Pentecost and Easter are mentioned uh, in the book of Acts. Um, Is Paul against that type of thing? Not at all. I think that what he's referring to are the festivals that were looking ahead to the coming of Jesus. Jesus has come as like, Uh, then we don't need to do these festivals anymore because, in fact, the Messiah has come. All of these were pointing ahead to this point. Jesus has come, and so they are no longer necessary. The point is they are to know God, or rather to be known by God. Again, from 1 Corinthians, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. 
But the man who loves God is known by God. What really matters is not your knowledge of God, but it is your love of God. And in loving God, you come to know God and are known by him. If our knowledge of God was, in fact, the basis of our faith, we would be standing on very, very shaky foundations. What matters is that God has known us, and he does know us, and he will know us. God keeps his promises. He is part of the covenant, and he has done that. So the choice for the Galatians is, is clear. Um, to them and to anyone who has put their faith in the crucified Messiah, either continue in freedom, because we've been set free in Christ, or turn back and become an idolater again. I think it was John Calvin who said the human heart is an idol factory. We're always coming up with something to put in the place of God. So you have a choice, either keep manufacturing these idols and turning to them, or have the freedom that we have in the crucified Messiah. Verse number 11 is where we'll stop today. It's sort of a hinge, it's sort of a, it's a bridge to the next passage, which the Lord willing we'll look at next week. Um, make sure you are worshiping the true God and everything else will follow. Um, this is something that Paul really wants to convey to them. Verse number 11, I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. And then what follows, and our time is almost done. Uh, this is an amazing passage that we're coming to because it tells the story of Paul when he went to Galatia and the Galatians' reception of him. How that, well, let me read it to you. I'll read it to you and then, Lord willing, we'll study it next week. I plead with you, verse 12, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people who are zealous to win you over, but not for good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good. To be so always and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. It's a deeply moving passage, and the Lord willing, we'll look at it next week. What Paul has written about up to this point, and then we will get into it next week, is in fact a relationship with God the Father through the crucified Messiah, by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
to know God. I think in our generation and those before, we have cheapened the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll get your ticket punched and you'll go to heaven. And Paul's like, the gospel is about God. It is a revelation of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the Son came to reveal the Father and then they both sent the Spirit into the world, into our hearts. That's what it's about. It's not about, do you have enough faith? Because if that's the question, then we all lose. We all fail. The question is, was Jesus faithful? It's the faithfulness of Jesus. And yes, he was. And we put our trust in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you with such limited understanding we are so finite and beyond that we're fallen we are so grateful that you have revealed who you are Father, Son and Spirit we could have never figured this out on our own and even that you, now that you have revealed yourself it is beyond our full comprehension but we know by your grace that you are our Father that you sent your Son that you sent your spirit. And Jesus was faithful, faithful even to death. And your spirit lives in our hearts. But the reality is, having been rescued from sin, there comes the desire to return back to that. Forgive us, we pray. Holy Spirit, open our hearts. Drill down and fill us with your truth. The truth isn't about us, it is about you. The true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. I thank you that in prayer we can recognize to some small degree who you are. And that you hear us. It's amazing that you do and you care about us. Thank you for bringing us together today. We're so grateful that Dan and Lonnie could be with us. We pray for Lonnie. You would touch her, restore her appetite, guide her doctor. Again, we're so grateful they could be with us today. As we leave this place, may your spirit go with us. May we have a sense of your presence as we walk through the world in this coming week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.